Hey, this is Kaz, and you are listening to Two Rope Watch Knobs, the only watch podcast that knows you cannot kill John Wick, so stop trying. Seriously, you have made it all the way to episode 190, and no, your ears do not deceive you. I am recording solo again. My better half and broke watch snobbery, Michael, could not make it with us. Everything's fine. His in-laws are in town. So I am flying solo, I am doing this alone, and you, if you've listened to TBWS, if you are a 2 Rogue Watch Knobs fan, you know exactly what's coming up. You know what happens when Michael leaves me alone. Guys and gals, we're going to talk about some motherfucking Soviet watches. Soviet watches are a particular uh, area of focus of mine, so when I say Soviet watches, I mean watches produced in the Soviet Union, you know, Russia and peripheral uh, Soviet bloc countries between 1917-ish and uh, 1991-slash-1992-ish. So that particular time period, uh, ooh, math, 70 years, 70 or 80 years, so that that's a particular uh, area of focus for me. Other previous solo episodes that I've done where uh, Soviet watches were the focus, it was like... Um, Oh man, I did five Soviet watches every, every collector needs to know about. Not even like like if you're a Soviet watch collector. Just five Soviet watches every collector needs to at least be aware of. To be an informed consumer and just be an informed collector and everything like that. Um, also, I think Michael and I did, in a well I technically did by myself, an affordable vintage aviation uh, watch episode. And I did that by myself. And all of those watches were, were uh, Soviet picks as well. And I think I, I might have done the history of Raketa by myself. Uh, Raketa watches out in St. Petersburg. St. Petersburg, Russia. Not St. Petersburg, Florida. <laughs> I'm in Florida, so that's the big joke. Um, Michael might have been there for that. But either way, episode 190, picking up where we've left off. I've already done the episode. Five Soviet watches. Every collector needs to know about. Well, you know what? Now it's time for five Soviet watches you've probably never heard of. Um, when I say Soviet watches or Russian watches, people are going to think of the, the the pretty normal torchbearers in that realm. So Vostok Amphibia is the big one. The big, 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 big one. Everyone knows Vostok Amphibias. Raketa Big Zero is becoming uh, uh, you know another... Other well-known name, um, the Polyot 3133 slash Sermansky 3133, the Soviet um, chronograph based off the Valju 7734. Those three are really, really big names. Most people are familiar with those. But I'm going to talk about five Soviet watches that most people have probably never heard of. Interesting, I didn't, this didn't even occur to me until I was getting ready for the, the show. All of them are divers, which is kind of weird because I feel like most people... I mean, rightfully so. Most people associate Soviet diving technology with the Vostok Amphibia, and that's 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 correct. They should. The Vostok Amphibia, you know, 1965 between 1968, it was technologically a fucking gigantic leap. That was the first Soviet watch that could hit 200 meters, you know, water resistance. Finally, a Soviet-made tool that the um, that they could just use without having to buy outside the country, because that was that was a really really big part of um, the Red Revolution and what kind of resulted in the Soviet Union was self-reliance. We need to industrialize. We need to make our own stuff. We can't rely on everyone else. And so, in 1965, 1967, between that time period, between prototyping and actual production, um, the Vostok Amphibia was a big big deal. 
And because of that, I don't think people realize there actually are, are other Russian, or excuse me, there are actually other Soviet divers. They're just not that popular because the amphibia is, is so good. Um, so we're going to be talking about that. Five Soviet watches you've probably never heard of, and they happen to all be divers. Um, but before that... We have to honor tradition, and we're going to honor tradition alone. I'm alone, so um, I'll just do the wrist check by myself, and then, oh, we have Patreon audio wrist checks to get to. Woo! So what I'm wearing for this week's episode is I am wearing, kind of fittingly, I'm wearing my Raketa Big Zero. Obviously, this is not a watch that people have never heard of. Everyone's fucking heard of this watch, especially if you're a fan of the Two Book Watch Knobs podcast, which you should be if you're listening. Because this is a solo episode, and you guys are going to hear me talk by myself for a long time. But I thought it'd be fun to wear the Raketa Big Zero. Um, this, for me, is a, what I would qualify as my memory watch. I think most watch folk, guys and gals, have some kind of watch that they try and associate or try and utilize for big events you know and that's not to say like oh if you're doing a big dressy gala this is my blah, 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 blah. no um i mean life events i have very positive and very negative memories associated with this watch because i've just tried to make this my my memory watch so positive memories um I proposed to my wife while wearing this watch. I got married with this watch. You know, this was my this was my wedding watch. Negative memories. Um, I went through some really negative health scare stuff with this watch. Um, I went through some very dramatic professional changes in my life. You know, with this watch, with the Raketa Big Zero. So I think everyone needs some kind of memory watch in their collection. And for me, it's the Raketa Big Zero, first vintage watch I ever got, first Soviet watch um, I ever got, and the watch that I kind of attribute to leading me down this path of um, not even just a fascination with Soviet horology, just Soviet horology, just a fascination with, you know, with horology, just collecting and then my collector's mentality progressing to, you know, um, watches. So yeah, Raketa Big Zero, this is actually going to be a cool episode because I am going to do a mid-watch swap, mid-watch TBWS podcast swap. Um, one of the watches I'm going to be talking about, Soviet watches, you should you've probably never heard of one of them I actually own so I'm going to put it on um, when I get to this segment just just because it'll be fun whatever uh, but here let's do this let's honor the new tradition we have let's get into the TBWS audio wrist check shout outs from our Patreon contributors if you support us on Patreon you are automatically entered into basically join us on the audio wrist check this is the closest that we can get you guys and gals home in on the audio wrist check fund without you breaking into our houses um you know, which we don't want you to do. Please don't do that. That's horrible. That would that would really... I don't want to say it would sour the mood, but it'd make it really hard. <laughs> it really, really hard to record without feeling threatened. So don't break into our homes. Uh, sorry, I'm getting very distracted. I've had a lot of coffee today. But uh, let's get into the TB, TB Davis audio wrist check. Shout outs. Huge mother humping shout out. This is so cool. So huge shout out to... Where the fuck is my mouse cursor? There you go. Cursor. <laughs> um, <laughs> huge TBWS audio wrist check Patreon mother humping shout out to at Captain Neon Captain Neon this is how you know this guy listens to the show he wrote his name out phonetically for me thank you thank you Captain Neon there you go Nyan Neon whatever he tried um, at Captain Neon Neon I already say your name I'm sorry dude he's chosen to wear 
I think probably the coolest mod, the coolest Orient mod. You don't see many Orient mods, and I'm going to classify this as a mod. The coolest Orient mod I've seen in a while. It is an Orient Mako XL times two, technically. So he wrote he wrote me a little paragraph here. I'm going to read it to you guys and gals at home because I think it's really cool. Uh, I'd like to share my Orient Mako XL. It's a two-in-one. Literally, I saw somebody on Reddit with something incidental, I'm not sure what that means, and wanted an orange on orange version, but couldn't find one in my budget. So the Orient Mako XL is interesting within the Mako production line because it's one of the only um, Orient Makos that's not like a saturation diver or an M-Force Orient Makos that has orange, which is actually a lot of fun. Orange is a really, really cool classic diving watch color, so... Um, it's not typical within the, t- the the normal Orient Mako line or the Orient Ray line, so um, that's what he's referring to. Uh, so he, I bought the orange bezel with black dial from Amazon to see how I liked the watch. I ended up loving it and then getting the blue one. Here's where it gets crazy. To transplant the movement with the blue dial into the orange bezel case. And then he sent me a photo. It is so fucking cool. Captain Nian, or however you say it, I'm super sorry. This thing is so fun. It's an orange bezel. It's got a really deep blue dial. It has the Mako XL hands, which are kind of like spear points. They don't look like the regular Mako hands. Uh, I don't think they do, actually. I should probably check before I sound like an idiot. Too late. Oh, and Mako too. Uh, oh, God damn it! You know it's really funny when you Google a watch to do research and your own fucking article pops up. All right, let's see. Yeah, I reviewed this watch. Now I sound even fucking dumber for not knowing what the hands like. Hey, yeah, there we go. Okay, yeah, this is different. The Orient Mako, <laughs> uh, the Orient Mako regular non-XL has like sword hands, whereas the Orient Mako XL has these really cool like spear, um, spear hands. And so it's orange bezel, blue dial, and he has it on a NATO that's uh, like a tri-stripe, blue, white, orange. It just looks so cool. It's very nautical-ish. Um, but like vacation nautical-ish in a good way. Uh, I think this thing is gorgeous. Yeah, Captain Nian, mad, mad kudos for putting this together. So wait, does that mean, does that mean you have, what do you do with the other piece? <laughs> with the other pieces, did you put the black, uh, did you put, what is it, the black bezel with like the, the black dial with the blue bezel or something like that? Let me know. Respond to me in our Patreon thread, because he and I were chatting. Um... Let me know what you did with that. But yeah, this thing is cool. Mad kudos. Thank you so much for joining me on the TBWS Audio Wrist Check Patreon shoutout. Orient Mako XL 2-in-1. That is a cool... No, that's a really cool mod. Um, man. Let's see here. Going down the line. Uh, also joining us... Oh, hell. Hell yes. Also joining us on the TBWS Audio Wrist Check Patreon shoutouts. At Cincy Watches, OG TBWS. I'm fairly certain um, I've seen you pop up on our feed a ton for a while. At Cincy Watches, go and check it out on Instagram. Checking in with the with the really really cool. I still love this watch, even though Zodiac is kind of going a little insane. Um, he has chosen to do his audio wrist check shout out with the Zodiac Aerospace GMT Golf. This thing is really cool. Um, TBWS, we were one of the first to get like a proper review, like a like a like like a review out. Um, uh, TBWS contributor Greg Bedrosian was able to get that out in time. I love this watch. I think it's great. 
It was, I think, one of the... I think originally it was limited edition, and this was the first time we saw like the aerospace GMT reimagined in this sense. I mean, obviously, there's like all the Zodiac Seawolves and all the different stuff that they're doing now and then but then when the aerospace gmt when the gulf as i guess it later came to be known came out um uh, for me it was super cool it's a little expensive i think and the whole limited edition thing um with zodiac which is like the name of the game right now we can you and i can at home can have like a like a, like a 34 day long discussion about limited editions and the negative or positive connotations or limitations within that whole framework of having everything be limited edition but we're not gonna do that right now sorry uh but here let's do this let's move on yeah again huge thank you to our audio restrict shout out contributors participants today for supporting the show helping us keep the lights on helping keep the tbws family motherfucking alive at captain neanne rocking the two-in-one orient mako xl and at since he watches rocking the zodiac aerospace gmt gulf man that thing is so fucking cool God, I want to try one of these things on one day. Next time I get the chance, if I'm ever in person at like an AD or a fucking store, whenever it becomes safe to go outside again, I might try and get one of these, either one of these aerospace GMTs on the wrist or maybe one of the Zodiac Super Seawolf. I I like small divers, you know, um, as you guys probably know by now. So here, let's do this. Staying on task. This is also why I need Michael here. Michael keeps me on task. Uh, Did the intro, did the wrist check, did the Patreon wrist check. Technically, I'm supposed to plug Patreon. I already did that. Uh, I will plug the Patreon Slack channel, though. If you want to get in on the fun, if you want to hang out with Michael and I, literally every day, it's every day, we're on the Patreon audio, or the, the Patreon uh, 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 TBWS Slack channel, the Patreon TBWS family. Slack. I forgot what it's called, but basically, go to patreon.com slash tbookwashnobs. Go and check it out. It's a lot of fun. The community is growing every single day. Uh, it's just a bunch of people talking about watches and complaining about work. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> as far as far as I'm concerned. So here, bam, roasted. Done talking about that. Amazon affiliate program. If you want to support the show, take part in Amazon affiliate program. Costs you nothing extra. All it costs you is an extra one or two clicks. Bam, roasted. Uh, what the fuck is this word that I wrote? Sign? Sites! Website. Go and check out twobookwashnobs.com. Um, we're in the process of getting a whole bunch of new stuff up. Uh, this week coming up, you'll see a really cool assessment from TBS contributor uh, Mark Signorelli, he 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 dives into the, into the whole watches and guns thing, um, talking about different crossovers between watches and other hobbies, and trying to explain why some watch enthusiasts are also firearm enthusiasts, and vice versa. It's a very measured look. Uh, anytime you do the gun and watch discussion, like the firearm and watch discussion, it's very easy for people to get um, upset. But I think one of the skills that we have, as humans have to fucking have in 2020 is the ability to have a thoughtful conversation with someone who may not necessarily have your same viewpoints or agree with you or like the same things. And just having a thoughtful discussion, understanding where someone else is coming from, while not necessarily having anyone in the conversation be upset or get mad about it or anything like that. Um, And just to clarify, I know nothing about firearms. I'm not like a big gun person or whatever, but I had no problem with this article. I thought it was super thoughtful. So if if it's an issue that's on your mind or if it's something that you have thoughts and opinions on, whether which side of the argument you are on, Go and check out Mark's write-up when it goes live. It's going live on Tuesday. Um, 
Tuesday, probably in the morning, Eastern Standard Time here in the States. I'm in Florida. As I've told you three fucking times already. You guys know I'm in Florida, so I'll stop saying it. Um, and then in addition to that, a uh, really, really cool piece from TBW's extraordinaire uh, uh, contributor, contributor extraordinaire, Damon Bailey. Damon Bailey is embarking on a fine art and watches miniseries. It's really, really cool. I've never seen anything like it. That first piece should be up. Uh, the first installment should be up, focusing on Movado uh, this Wednesday. When that goes live, check it out. I'll let everyone know on Instagram as well, but definitely keep an eye um, on the website as well. So, boom, roasted. All right. I gotta stop saying that. God damn it. Um, to the intro, wrist check, Patreon wrist check, all the housekeeping. Let's get into the main motherfucking topic. Do you guys and gals at home want to talk about Soviet watches? Well, you better have said yes, because this is going to happen, goddammit. Five Soviet watches you've probably never heard of. So any discussion in regards to Soviet watches has to be prefaced with you understanding that Soviet watch urology didn't operate in the same way as the rest of the world's kind of urological industries operated and evolved pre-1917, pre-October Revolution, before, you know, communism was on the road to being a properly adopted form of government in Russia. Before that, Russian neurology wasn't really a thing. Um, Russia wasn't industrialized, not to the same standard as the rest of Europe. Um, and what's also really important to bear in mind is that there wasn't really a Russian middle class at that time, or really even the seeds for the Russian middle class. Um, scholars debate this, but basically you can trace the idea of the middle class back to the Renaissance and the rise of, of mercantilism. The idea that you don't have to be born noble to make money, buy a good estate, and be really well respected in your community. That was a very European Renaissance thing that didn't happen in Russia, um, you know, during the same time period as it happened in the in the rest of the world. That's why most Russian forms of art are also very different from the rest of Europe. So uh, Russian literature is incredibly different from the rest of Europe, you know, especially Russian 18th century, 19th century, uh, you know, literature and shit like that. Super different from the rest um, of Europe. Uh, although, you know, it does does bear to mention, and this actually ties into it, Russian aristocracy was greatly influenced by French noble court culture. So there are some crossovers, especially with like fine art and really, really nice stuff, which is actually part of the issue. So Russia didn't industrialize, Russia didn't have a proper agricultural support system to feed a country of that size. There were a number of really severe famines happening in Russia at a time where the rest of Europe was great, relatively. Um, you know, in terms of how the population was going, economy, discovery, age of discovery, all this shit. Um... Russia was just struggling because it was, for a couple reasons. The aristocracy 
didn't position the government in such a way to support the people. The aristocracy positioned the government in such a way to support the aristocracy. And so everything that was occurring in the country was occurring to support this sort of French nobility-like court culture that the Russians were trying to emulate. So, um, like many, actually, like, 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 like many European courts, they spoke French, you know, um, I think during, like, legal proceedings and shit like that. Um... Probably not closer to like the 1800s and things like that, but before that, you know, which is really weird if you think about it. Um, keeping in focus to orology, though, pre 1917, the only watches you found in Russia, keeping in mind that there was no industrialized force of watch production, uh, what you found were non-Russian, um, usually Swiss watchmakers who set up little independent shops. In uh, Russia, the most famous of which is um, Moser and Co. Moser and Co. Uh, huge legacy uh, orological brand. They were in Saint Petersburg. They were in Saint Petersburg, and they left either during the 1917 revolution or when the writing was on the wall, and they just got the fuck out. Uh, what they would do, uh, and what a lot of these other European pocket watch, very expensive pocket watch manufacturers would do, was to avoid like taxes and tariffs and things like that, they would ship watches from their home countries in pieces because if you shipped an entire watch, you have to pay taxes on it, blah, blah, blah. So they would ship the watch, the pocket watch in pieces to their small craft shop, you know, um, you know where they would then assemble them in Russia. So get, get all the parts would get created and milled and fabricated, whatever the fuck, in their European home base. And then those individual parts would get shipped to St. Petersburg, in the case of Moser Co., uh, where it would then get assembled in the shop and then sold mainly to nobility, aristocracy, folks that could afford it, and mainly as gifts. Uh, you know, people weren't actually telling times on these things. That's why they were really intricately decorated. So, bearing that in mind, 1917 occurs, um, and quite violently, the government sh- you know, shifts the the majority of the population of Russia at the time was fed up with not having enough food, not watching other European countries, or watching other European countries prosper while their country is struggling, and uh, Russian government and nobility and aristocracy not really worrying that much about it. So 1917, Red Revolution, October Revolution, um, the government's overthrown, Bolsheviks take power, instill communism with the idea of no... No Soviet citizen will ever be without what they need. Food, tools for your specific vocation or job or whatever. Um, And in the case of of orology and watches, every Soviet citizen can get a watch. Um, Because remember, they don't have... This is super super dumb to say, but you have to say it. There weren't phones back then. You're not telling the time on your fucking microwave when you're making coffee in the morning. Like, if you didn't have a watch, or if someone around you didn't have a watch, you didn't know what fucking time it was. Which is crazy if you think about it. Just think about how many times in the day you check the time. (laughs) I want you guys to count it next time. So just imagine not having a watch, which a lot of them just didn't, you know? I mean, like, there were centralized forms of time-telling in certain towns, like big clocks and squares and shit like that. 
Um, but during this period of time in orological history, the idea of having your own individual watch it was becoming pretty normal. Pocket watches, wrist watches, and shit like that, you know? And so that was one of the things on their, uh, on their radar. But all of that comes with the caveat of every factory, every industrialized factory, every workshop, every something or other is owned by the government. So all of these Soviet orological brands that I'm going to talk about were government owned. And you have to understand that anytime we do, that's, that's what all this was leading up to, by the way. I'm super sorry to me that long to get there. That Any Soviet watch discussion has to be understood from those two points. Soviet orology didn't exist before 1917, technically 1929, 1930, if you want to get date specific, because that's when the first Moscow watch factory was being built, was built. So Soviet orology did not exist before the October Revolution, and all Soviet watch factories were government-owned, uh, government which gets really confusing because you have certain watch quote-unquote brands, because there's not really Soviet watch brands, there's Soviet watch factories. Uh, and the difference being where something is made and then what it says in the dial. So as an example, Pobeda is a Soviet dial designation that was made in multiple factories. Um, so that's why Soviet watch brands is a weird concept. It's really Soviet watch uh, factories. So here, let's do this. We talked a little bit in the beginning of the episode about the Vostok Amphibia in 1965. 1965, I need to enunciate better, God damn it. 1965 and 1967 being the Soviets' first concrete example of being able to produce a dive watch that could hit 200 meter um, water resistance. It's quite an ingenious design. It's essentially a compression watch, but you have to remember the Soviets weren't industrialized. They didn't have a labor force and the appropriate machinery to work metal, work hard metal, like stainless steel metal, in the same way a lot of their other European counterparts um, could. So the early Vostok amphibias were very, very basic compression style watches. They're basically just unsexy, I mean they're sexy to me, but whatever, unsexy hunks of steel. They don't have lugs because you couldn't not you, but you know, not you and I. But back then, the Soviets didn't have the technology and the and the the uh, experience to finely milled stainless steel to have these little protruding lugs. So it's got a lugless design. It's a very simple looking um, piece, and it's essentially a compression watch with a super thick acrylic dome, with the principle of most compression watches, where the more hold on, I cats here, the more pressure that's exerted on the watch, the tighter all of the seals become so water, um, you know, can't get into it. So uh, Soviets took, I think, a few years to develop it. The, the, the Vostok watch factory in Kistopol, the Kistopol watch factory, um, took several years to do to develop it. And then it was developed, and then that was it. That was, this, that was the, the Soviet dive watch of, ch- of choice, you know. Fucking Trey, Trey Excellence, Trey Excellence. I don't, I don't know French. Obviously, I'm not part of the Russian nobility, pre-Russian, pre-1917 nobility. Um, if you ever saw the the animated film Anastasia, that event, you know, with the Romanovs and all that stuff like that, that that's the October, uh, uh, you know, revolution and everything. If you've seen that animated film, I have great music, really wonderful music. Um, 
But the Vostok Amphibia, that's what I was talking about. I'm going to use the Vostok Amphibia as kind of my anchor point to reference the rest of these watches. So 1965, 1967, the Soviets crack the 200-meter dive watch. Was there a dive watch before? Yes. Yes, there was. And it's incredibly controversial. I'm going to start with this watch first as a watch that most people probably don't know about. But you pr- you might have technically heard of because there's a huge shadow of just controversy around this watch and the uh, modern watch brand Invicta. So a pause for all of your all your hisses and sneers and spits towards the ground. I'll say it again just so you guys can do it fresh. Invicta. Okay. I preface that with saying I'm an Invicta owner. I have an Invicta Pro Diver with the, um, with the NH35 in it. I love the watch. I think it's great. I think Invicta is doing some things really, really well. However, it is not without sin. So one of the most egregious things that people are mad at Invicta about is the fact that it copies other watch brand designs. So if there's some sort of really well-known Swiss watch design out there, and you're like, oh man, that's really cool. Oh man, I love that Omega Seamaster Professional uh, 300 style case with the bezel, uh, but I don't want to pay three, four, five, ten thousand $10,000 for it. Oh shit, Invicta makes one for $90. I'll just, I'll just get that. As long as you're not going to die, but I'll just get that. Um, the only thing, well, the, the, the thing with that is Invicta never claims to be, as far as I'm aware, the originator of that design. Invicta doesn't claim to have invented this, the Rolex Submariner case. Invicta doesn't claim to have invented the Zenith, the big pilot. They have a Zenith, a Zenith pilot watch with the big numbers and the giant fucking crown and everything. But there is one watch that Invicta copied that they claim they invented. And I'm just going to tell you guys right now. They didn't. Let's get into the first watch. The first Soviet watch you probably have never heard of. It is the Zlatost Diver. Technically, let me... let me. I'm going to pull up a photo of this watch because we have to see this thing in real time. <clears throat> it is the Zlatost 191YC... Um, this watch was produced in the 50s and the 60s. So this is pre-Vostok Amphibia. This is this is probably the dive watch that most Soviet divers... Okay, I should refer... I should, I should take that back. This is probably the most prevalently Soviet-used dive watch the Soviet divers were using. It's the reason there was such a fervent push for the Vostok Amphibia to hit 200 meters because the Soviet divers back then were probably using European watches that could hit 200 meters. Um, and obviously, that's a really big pain point for the Soviets. They want to be self-reliant. They want to make their own shit, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, but if there was a Soviet diver that wasn't using a European you know, dive watch, they were probably pre-Amphibia using this Zlatost um, 191YC diver. So Zlatost, I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong, I don't speak Russian. Zlatost, Zlatost is a watch factory that actually has a similar background to Vostok. If you guys remember, 
there are a handful of pivotal dates for Soviet watchmaking. Um, I think one of them is 1935 or 1931, which is the... No, 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 no. 1930... 1929, 1930 is a really big date because that is when the first Moscow watch factory was created with machinery that the Soviets purchased from uh, Canton, Ohio. I didn't stutter. Canton, Ohio in USA. Duberhampton uh, Watch Manufacturing. Pocket watches. They were going out of business. They sold their machinery to the Soviets to jumpstart uh, their industrialized Soviet watchmaking program. So 1930, big date. I think after that, 1935-ish, um, similar similar situation, the injection of French lip technology. Lip was uh, lip is a French orological uh, manufacturer who in the 1930s was going through really hard financial times, and so to make money, they sold licenses and machinery and designs to... Um, the Soviets, and that technology in particular is what really led to the creation of Raketa, as we know it today. So 1931, 1935, there's two other really big dates. Um, 1961, Yuri Gagarin, obviously, that's a huge fucking deal, not just for Soviet urology and the Soviets, but for fucking Earth. 1961, and the other really big date, 1941, the Germans invade Moscow, World War II, and Everything is fucking kicked into chaos. Two things happened when the Germans invaded Moscow in 1941. The first one most of you should know about because I've talked about it a few times on this on this show. So pay attention. There will be a quiz at the end. I'm not going to quiz you guys. 1941, Moscow's invaded. First Moscow watch factory. Second Moscow watch factory. There's a second one. The second Moscow watch factory is evacuated to a town called, uh, to, to a region, you know, a city of, of Kistopol. I think it's in the Tartis, Tartistan region. Tartan, Tartis, Tartistan? It doesn't matter. Uh, second Moscow watch factory goes to Kistopol. Kistopol eventually becomes factory 835 or 853. I always get the two mixed up. I have, I have like number and letter-specific dyslexia, which you guys should have fucking noticed by now. So it's either Factory 835 or 853. It doesn't really matter. Factory 835 slash 853 then becomes Vostok. So backtracking. Second Moscow Watch Factory. Moscow invaded. Second Moscow Watch Factory uh, uh, evacs to Kistopol, makes munitions and, and other war effort materials Eventually becomes Vostok. Vostok crew goes on to then create the iconic Soviet dive watch. But there was another. <laughs> there was another factory that was evacuated. Yes, if you're all screaming at home as I hope you are. First Moscow watch factory, Kaz. The first Moscow watch factory was also evacuated. Both the second Moscow watch factory and the first Moscow watch factory evacuated east. East out of Moscow. Kistopol is about, oh god, 500 miles from Moscow. And that's where the second Moscow watch factory went. There's a town or a region, I'm not sure, I'm not too sure, not super sure, um, Zlatoust. That is another five or 400 miles after Kistopol. And that's where the first Moscow watch factory went. The first Moscow watch factory evac'd to um, Zlatoust. Zlatoust. Super sorry if I'm not saying that right. And actually, they had a really similar history uh, during World War II as um, as Kistopol, as the second Moscow watch factory, which would then go on to become uh, Vostok. You know, they made 
Um, mainly they made, uh, I think they did some munitions, but what was really interesting is that the majority of like tanks and planes had watches or clocks that were made in Zlatos. So the Zlatos watch factory had more, seems to have had more of a neurological focus than, um, you know, uh, a Kistapol factory, 830, uh, 835, Kistapol, I'll just say Kistapol watch factory, just to keep it easier, Kistapol watch factory, um, and then, let me see here, I'm trying to think. That's World War II. After World War II, again, very similar situation. After World War II, the second Moscow Watch Factory returns to Moscow. After World War II, the first Moscow Watch Factory returns to Moscow, but both of those factories left their influence on Kistopol, and then 500 more miles east in the in Zlatost. Zlatost. Sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Uh, Zlatost. And they left enough of an impression for both factories to then focus on orological manufacturing. Kissipol made watches. Uh, Zlatos also made watches. Um, and also like instrument gauges and things like that because they had all this like small machinery, fine technology and things like that. But in the 50s and 60s, Zlatos was also making a very early, if not the first, I mean, I'm not too sure, excuse me, if this is technically the first uh, Soviet diver, but I know it's one of the early ones. In the 1950s, 1960s, Zlatos was making the 191YC, or CY, let me see, I had to write it down for you kind folk at home. 191YC, dive watch. This is probably the craziest looking watch ever. Bearing in mind that this watch is designed for hard hat divers. Now, if you're like me and you didn't know what a hard hat diver was until you heard that term and Googled it and everything like that, when you think of like old timey, and I'm sorry, I'm not like a diver guy, so I'm gonna sound like a fucking asshole right now. If you think of old timey divers wearing the giant copper suits and they have the big helmets with the three portholes and they go under with the ho, that's hard hat diving. That's what the Zlatos 191YC dive watch was designed to be used with. But it's designed to be used in such a way where it's actually functional. It's a, or a functional, not just for like time telling, but actually a functional part of the, the, the diver's survival. So here's what I'm going to do. I am on USSRtime.info, which is the facsimile site created by Soviet watch fans. Um, collecting the collection, collecting the timepieces and previous website of the Lake Mark Gordon, who's probably one of the most prolific watch collectors in Soviet, who was, he's dead, unfortunately. Uh, USSR Time, uh, dot info is the new site. Used to be ussrtime.com. That's gone. Now it's ussrtime.info. I'm going to have all this stuff in the show notes and on the site and like that for you guys as well. What I'm going to do is um, Mark had a couple of these Lotus divers from the 50s and 60s pre-amphibia um, in his collection I am just going to read the description that he's written here. Uh, this is word for word. I'm attributing this to USSRtime.info slash USSRtime.com. Specifically, this is for item number, oh God, 1453. So USSRtime.info slash details slash 1453.html. All the links will be up and everything like that. I'm just citing myself the best I can to make sure everyone knows that I'm reading this word for word off the website. 
Here is the description that Mark uh, had written for this lighthouse diver. <clears throat> Solid nickel steel case weighs more than 280 grams, excluding the stem. The watch is 60 meters in diameter, in diameter, in diameter. With the canteen cap stem, it is 78 millimeters in diameter. That's literally like two watches, two 38 or 39 millimeter watches next to each other. That's fucking huge. And it has this giant, it has like a can, the, 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 the style of crown is called canteen. It's like a giant cap that screws on top of the crown stem. So basically, um, remember machine machining wasn't super precise uh, for the Soviets, especially in the 50s and 60s. So as opposed to being able to create, it looks like, a little screw-down crown, they have a regular crown, and then on top of that, they've just got this huge screw-down cap with like a little chain on it. It's really great. It's really outrageous looking. How many two? Uh, hey, this is how you, this I know. I'm an American. Two hundred eighty grams. What's that in ounces? Nine point eight ounces. I mean, that's pretty fucking heavy, dude. That's pretty fucking heavy for a watch. God damn. Let me see here. Ba ba ba. One. Nope. Wrong button. All right. So big watch. 60 millimeters without the crown, without the crown, 78 with the crown, uh, I guess it's almost a pound, it's about 10 ounces, so it's like maybe, I don't know, three, a little, a little more than half of a pound, 60% of a pound, I'm not going to math, whatever 60% of a pound is. That's what you're wearing on your wrist when you have one of these Lothaust, um, Lothaust 161 YC divers. All right, so back to the description on ussrtime.info. Here we go. Here's where it gets crazy with this Lothaust. It's Lothaust diver. These massive watches were originally designed to be used by hard hat divers who wore a pressurized suit surmounted by a heavy brass helmet with portholes in the front and sides, so like I was saying, old-timey divers. Air was supplied from the surface by a long hose. The heavy nickel steel case was purposefully designed to contribute ballast weight, along with a belt studded with lead weights that helped counteract the buoyancy of the air circulating in the watertight suit. Now here's probably one of the most notable things of this Zlathaust, Zlathaust diver in not just the design, but something particular here that's actually really interesting within, you know, vintage urology. This is a radium dial. The dial is highly radioactive even through the movement and the case back, bearing in mind how fucking big this watch is. Um... See, he says here, a good friend has a similar piece in his collection in Moscow, and that person reports that this, that the Zlatow diver uh, has a gamma radiation output of about 8,000 to 10,000 micro rotangents. Mm, I'm not like a nuclear scientist here, so I'm going to try that again. Micro rotangents. 
per hour with the dosimeter held at the crystal. So 8 to 10,000. Bearing in mind that natural background radiation is 15 to 30. Jesus. International standards limit indoor exposure to 15 to 30 uh, rotogens per 8-hour work shift and 60 micro rotogens in outdoor situations. So 15 to 30 or 60 in the outdoors, whereas through the case back, this lathouse diver emits 8 to 10,000. Man. Given the considerable thickness of the one-piece nickel steel case back and the layers of rubber suiting that would be between the watch and the diver's skin, this watch probably would have been safe for the diver to wear. Probably. I don't know. <laughs> that just seems like pretty, pretty outrageous. So, um, But I think it actually illustrates one of the more interesting points of Soviet urology. The Soviets stopped using radium loom um, before the rest of Europe. And I think it's because of this. I think I think they actually ran into a lot of issues um, with just the manufacturing of this thing. If you're not familiar, radium loom is how they used to get luminescent material on watches um, so you could see them at night and everything like that. Radium loom, however, is uh, radioactive. It, carry, it carries proper you know, radioactivity. So if you have a radio, an old you know, radium dial, radium loom dial, um, it'll probably register in the Geiger counter. That presented danger for people in the time and also modern collectors. So uh, there's a really great documentary, I think it's a book called Radium Girls, uh, about the mainly female workforce that applied the radium paint to these watches, not the Zlathaus divers in particular, although maybe this is more generally, you know, European urology. Um, uh, and it's usually very, very young girls, uh, kids, what they would do is they would paint these dials, um, but they would have to lick the brushes to get the, 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 the tip of the brush fine enough to where they could do very intricate paintwork. But the problem is they were licking the brushes while it had the radioactive paint, um, on it. So, um, you know, they were stricken with all kinds of just horrible, just the, health impacts and just side effects of all the radioactivity. So really, really, really sad. But um, radium loom was phased out in Europe um, and it was phased out in the Soviet Union. But the Soviets did it before the Europeans. I think I was suspecting it's because of this Lothouse, uh diver. So that's my first pick for a watch, for a Soviet watch that you've probably never heard of. Uh, oh, let's get into the controversy here with Invicta. Invicta claims <laughs> to have invented this watch. Uh, if you've ever heard of the Invicta Russian divers, they're claiming they made this watch. That's why there is an Invicta Russian uh, uh, Russian diver line. Um, obviously, Invicta is a legacy Swiss brand. You know, obviously, but 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 now uh, under I think in the '90s it was um, purchased by. Um, by a private business person and they have the headquarters in Hollywood, Florida, kind of near where I grew up in Fort Lauderdale and shit like that. So um, obviously the Invicta now is not the Invicta that it was before, but this is one of the only watch designs that Invicta has stolen, which they claim to have actually invented. Let me read you this story. I have to read you this fucking 
explanation. So there's a really incredible piece on um, the, I think the Soviet watch, uh, watch you seek uh, forum thing. I'll link to it, but um, someone has translated a news article written by a journalist in Russia who really just wanted to get more information on the Zlatost uh, excuse me, watch factory. And in the process of doing this, kind of stumbled upon all this Invicta stuff and just really went out of their way to um, debunk it. Invicta, I'm going to see here. I'm looking for the area. Here we go. He isolates, uh, and this is translated and then upload, uh, translated into English and put onto Watch You Seek by, um, by a forum member. This person has found the reasoning that Invicta uses for stealing the uh, Zlatous, you know, dive watch design. So if you've, so just to, just to pack up, if you've ever seen an Invicta dive watch with a huge cap and like a little chain on it, that's the Zlatous diver. That's the watch that they stole and claimed to have invented. So I'm going to read this here. This is translated from Russian, uh, uploaded by not the original author. So we're playing a game. We're playing a game of telephone here, but here we go. I'm reading this word for word. My cat's here. Uh, the tall tale, which was chosen for promoting the so-called Russian does Russian diver, was very interesting. They, they being um, Invicta, alleged that in 1959 the USSR Navy General Headquarters chose Invicta as the best among other Swiss watch companies, and thus the company being Invicta, was commissioned to make a limited edition of 100 diver watches, whether as a prize for the best Navy divers or to compare the quality of Swiss watches to those of Soviet ones, I'm sure. As for the design, they say that the style of these watches was discovered among documents belonging to the grandmother of Ialalo, Layo, Lalo, the president of Invicta. According to their words, that old sample thoroughly improved on... Okay, I'm going to have to to transliterate here. The documents they discovered in the grandmother of of the president of Invicta's, I don't know, travel trunk or whatever, those documents claimed that after the Swiss Invicta made, uh, made a dive watch for this Lotthaus watch factory that Invicta then actually improved on the design that Lotthaus was doing at the time. So I take that back when I say it's not that they're claiming they invented it. They're claiming they were the ones responsible for making this Lotthaus diver better through these documents and things like that that they that they found. Um Within these samples and documents was the only real prototype of all dive watches made in Zlaust. Ah, so they say, the, so Invicta claims to have found the prototype for the Zlatous diver among the things of the Invicta family ownership, blah, blah, blah. And that's why they believe they have the quote unquote moral rights to produce watches of this style. 
So there's a lot of things wrong with that. No one's seen these fucking documents. No one's seen this prototype. And I, I, do you guys remember when I started this conversation and I said the Soviets made a very concerted effort to not rely on Europe and to be self-sufficient and to make their own stuff? Why in the fuck would they ask a Swiss watch manufacturer for help? Truthfully, what they would have done, if this story is even partially true, is they would have just stolen it. The Soviets usually did one of two things. They either purchased new technological advances, as they did with Canton, Ohio and the USA, and then also French Lip, um, or they would have stolen it, as they did potentially with the... Not the Valjoux, the Valjoux they purchased. Um, The Valjoux 7734, that ended up being the Polyot 3133. They bought that. Uh, but the uh, but the the the, the A Shield and Co. The movements that went on to become the Polyot Signal. They probably stole that. Um, that's pretty clear. Uh, in addition to several other technological advances, so the story just doesn't make sense from that point of view. They wouldn't. They would have either bought something or just stolen it. They wouldn't have asked Invicta. First of all, they wouldn't have said, Invicta, you're a great watchmaker. That conversation would have never fucking happened. And the second part is they wouldn't then say, hey, can you make us a watch to help us better understand our watch? So whether or not Invicta was doing a design like this, because there were other um, canteen-style divers around at the time, you know, where the big cap goes over the crown. So whether Invicta was doing a watch like this, the Soviets then stole it and Invicta's claiming oh well actually they asked us to do it and blah 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 that's why we can make it I don't know if that's true or if all of this is just bullshit but yeah this is the only time I've seen Invicta actually claim to be the originator of one of the designs they stole how fucking wild is that Zlat's house diver um I wouldn't go and try to buy one of these online for a couple of reasons there's a lot of fakes and uh it's fucking radioactive super radioactive so Unless you're already sterile, or you don't want children, or you're on your last days anyway, I wouldn't buy this watch if you if you can if you can find it online. Um, but do look it up. I'll have links so you can take a look at the pictures. I feel like that really 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 cool. Uh, so 1950s, 1960s, Zlat House Diver, probably a Soviet watch. Most people don't know about. Uh, here we go. So I spend way too much time talking about that diver, which is probably good because the other ones should go pretty quick. 1950, 1960, it's the Zlat House Diver. 1960, excuse me. 19, late 1960s into, I mean, all the way to the end of the Soviet Union, it was the Vostok Amphibia. However, and I'm trying to figure out why, I'm doing a little bit of research why, in the 80s, three other factories slash two other, like, dial designations um, tried to make their own diver. Those three, and these all came out in the 80s, around the same time, and they all kind of look similar-ish. It's Raketa. Raketa tried to make a dive watch in the 80s. Slava. Fucking news to me. (laughs) Slava tried to make um, a dive watch in the 80s. And Polyot tried to make a dive watch in the 80s. Only one of those makes sense to me. Polyot trying to make a dive watch in the 80s makes sense because Polyot is the first Moscow watch factory and the first Moscow watch factory was 
fairly res- pretty much responsible for making um, you know military specific chronographs, also chronographs for like the space program and shit like that. So your Polyot thirty one thirty threes, and then before that the Strela three zero one seven. So Polyot doing a diver makes sense, you know, especially if they're doing it for the Navy or whatever. But Slava and Raketa do not. Um, let's see here. Let's go in order. I'll go in order as I have written them down. Let's talk about the Raketa Amphibia. So Raketa is actually still around. And um, you can get a modern Raketa Amphibia. They try to make it seem like it was this legendary... Russian dive watch and that like it was super well used and but no most people just used the Vostok amphibia especially if you were like in the service or whatever that's my understanding because they also sold these things um I don't know what the specific term is but like in military installations they'll have stores that they'll will only sell to service members um the Russian equivalent of that is the Ministry of Defense had stores that would only sell to enlisted people and Ministry of Defense employees and family members, um, and those stores sold Vostoks. There's a term for it, I can't remember. Um, yeah, I can't remember. Someone's going to tell me as soon as I'm done recording. Uh, someone's going to email me, which is fine. Um, so if you go to the modern Raketa website and look for the amphibia, the Raketa amphibia, um, you know, you'll see all that. That's also one of the things to keep in mind. Amphibia wasn't... Again, remember, all these factories are owned by the government. Amphibia wasn't a branded thing to Vostok. That was just the word they used to designate that watch as a dive watch. Um, so, you know, you'll see Raketas with the word Amphibia on the case back. I have an example here of a photo pulled up. I think it's the Slava. It says Amphibia on the case back, but it's not a Vostok Amphibia. You know, so Amphibia back then wasn't, you know, it wasn't like the, it wasn't like the Rolex Submariner. Where sub, if I say Submariner, most people will know I mean a Rolex. You know, if I said Amphibia, um, you know, in the 70s and 80s, I would probably have to clarify and say Vostok Amphibia. Or not, who knows. Um, the Raketa Amphibia is pretty cool. It's a stainless steel case. This thing is rocking probably a modified version of the super prolific Raketa 2609, which I mentioned before was um, based off of the, previously before the 2603, which then previously before it was based off the French lip technology. So um, this is the same movement that's actually in my big zero. The Raketa 2609 caliber was used in a shit ton of watches. Uh, and they really, really hammered this thing and iterated on it the best they could actually modern Raketas are based off the 26xx um, platform although i think now they're automatic so this Raketa diver and uh, amphibia made these in the 80s think 70s and 80s has really big numerals it's actually funny i'm noticing it now it's the same font as my big zero except that 12 o'clock doesn't have you know a zero it has a 12 but same font that's crazy actually uh really really big numerals it has loom, but it's not radium loom, because remember, this is the 80s. The Soviets have already phased out um, radium. I mean, sort of, sort of the Europeans or whatever. The bezel is black with orange. It's like a black plastic material. The one thing that I did notice among all of these uh, bezels on the Slava Diver, which we'll talk about, and the Polyat, which we'll talk about, and this Raketa, is that all the bezels look much more... 
what's the grippy <laughs> so the the really weird thing depending on what case style you get with the vostok amphibia it's really hard to grip the bezel these divers that came out in the 80s i'm hypothesizing loosely that they were probably just trying to improve on bezel design making it more functional making the bezel easier to uh grab you know so big black bezel it's a plasticky kind of material stainless steel case black dial really big numerals it's a beautiful watch and as far as accounts go actually it's a very well-built watch Raketa's just not really a tool watch maker Raketa was more of the um they had a lot of their processes automated which means they could get more artistic or design focused or as artistic and design focused as you could get as a Soviet watch um, manufacturer, they had a lot of propaganda dials, so hammers and sickles and all that stuff. Um, so seeing the Raketa Diver is interesting, but I think these things are gorgeous. I would love to own one one day, but I don't think people realize they exist. So the Raketa Amphibia, boom. Second Soviet watch that you probably have never heard of. I, I think I've brought it up a couple times on air. So um, just recapping where, we at, where we're at so far, because I spent so much time on the Zlataus. Um, First Soviet watch you probably have never heard of, the Zlataust 191YC, um, hard hat, hard hat diver, crazy, uh, and also this Raketa amphibia. Let's switch gears and talk about this Slava. This Slava diver is very interesting. I have a photo up here. This uh, uh, example again, I'm pulling from Mark Gordon's collection, USSRtime.info. Particularly, this is uh, collection item number 0568. I'll have all the links and shit. This has this is very European. Uh, when you guys see it, you'll take a gander at it. Very European in that the minute hand is this big orange arrow. Um, that for me is like a it's like a really weird squale thing and like 60s and 70s like diver uh thing it looks like it's actually still rocking the slava 28 or 2428 movement uh it's a double barrel mainspring movement which means as opposed to a traditional watch that has one big mainspring barrel which you'd wind up um this has two smaller barrels. This is actually the same movement that's in my Slava Medical, my mechanical pulse meter. Uh, it's a beautiful movement. Aesthetically, I, I find it very, very pleasing. But this watch to me is very European. Big orange uh, minute hand. Lots of design and minute detail on the bezel. And again, it's a very raised bezel off the case. It's probably super easy to grab. Um, Oh, yeah, so Slava is technically the second Moscow watch factory. So I'm also trying to make sure I keep my factories and geographies correct. Raketa is the Petrovorets factory. It's in St. Petersburg. This Slava diver, uh, which I'm fairly certain looks like a 2428. Um, this is the second Moscow watch factory based in Moscow. Very European in its design. I honestly don't... I haven't seen one of these online in a long time. They're fairly rare. That's the thing with all of these watches that I'm talking about right now. Super low production. Um, they just didn't make a lot of them. Because remember, the dive watch, the dive watch of choice in the 80s was the, the 
the Vostok Amphibia, you know? So, but this thing is quite beautiful. You get a good sense for how far, I'm looking at this particular image here, you get a good sense of how far the bezel protrudes at the sides of the case. Um, when you look at the photos that Mark Gordon has taken, has taken of the back of the watch. So if I'm looking at the back of the watch, I actually am able to see the teeth of the bezel extending further than the sides of the, uh, of the case, which is actually pretty cool. Um, extending quite, quite far than the, the sides of the case. And this one in particular actually says, also says, um, you know, amphibia on the uh, on the case back here which is pretty cool so reinforcing the idea that amphibia was not just a Vostok thing uh, so yes Slava amphibia Slava diver 80s the other 80s diver is the Poliot and this one this one's probably my favorite because of all of the hurdles the Soviets faced with industrializing their their take on urology, there were a few sticking points. The dive watch thing, they got it. Vostok amphibia, boom, got it. The two things they never really perfected were the chronograph, although they did an excellent effort with the purchasing of the 77 the value 7734 technology to then repurpose it into the polyot 3133 as far as a soviet chronograph is going to go that was the best option we'd had but obviously at the time there did exist way better chronographs but for the soviets that was it so not the best execution the one part of soviet urology that they never really got well is loom so obviously we talked about loom before with the zlatoust um, diver with the radium loom after that after radioactive loom was phased out they never really got the mixture the formula the ability to apply it correctly they never really got it right and in no watch factory is that more apparent than the first moscow watch factory after uh, in about the 50s or actually actually about the 60s and 70s when the first Moscow watch factory kind of became well, technically it was Kirov Kirov watch factory um, and then became Polyot Polyot loom is like highlighter green <laughs> it looks like I, I have a Polyot 3133 in my collection and the loom it's cakey it's grainy it's really fucking gross looking. It looks like really badly applied cupcake icing. It's actually really funny. That's how you can actually tell if you have a real Polyot 3133 or a real Polyot signal or in this case a Polyot diver. If the loom is like Hulk green and looks like shit, you got a real Polyot. <laughs> the fakes that they do, um, the loom is too nice. It's very smooth. It has this opaque look to it when it's not charged, blah, blah, blah. The Polyot Diver, again, it has this theme of a very big bezel. Another dark plastic looking uh, bezel material. But for me, the most the be most beautiful thing is just the loom. It's not even supposed to be beautiful. It's supposed to be functional. It doesn't even work anymore. Uh, it shouldn't work anymore. Mine doesn't. 
the uh, the Polyot thirty one thirty three loom that I have doesn't really work anymore. The loom adds this really beautiful aesthetic quality. It's like a greeny teal sort of look. Um, the hash marks again are very pronounced, so you're getting the sense of the divers that that Slava Raketa and and um, Polyot were doing in the 80s after the Vostok and was already like really well recognized. You get the sense that these divers they were trying to work on, they were trying to improve the functionality, legibility, easier bezels to grip, you know, and everything like that. The other really interesting thing is that this Polyot diver, it's rocking the um, 2621 movement, which is actually automatic, which is pretty cool. Automatic movements aren't normal in Soviet urology. It's not towards the late end of the 80s when you start seeing automatic movements. Um, what's actually really cool is where the Raketa Amphibia, backing up to Raketa, the Raketa Amphibia is a screw-down case back, whereas this Slava Amphibia and the Polyot Diver, these are um, O-ring style case backs, kind of like the Vostok Amphibia, where a cap goes on the back, but then a separate ring uh, screws on top of that and then kind of like sandwiches um, sandwiches everything down but I don't believe these are the same sort of decoupling crowns that you'll get on the Vostok Amphibia you know the broken crown wobble if you've handled a Vostok Amphibia and when you unscrew it it feels like the crown's broken that's by design that's so the crown decouples on the Vostok Amphibia so when um, 200 meters worth of ocean pressure is exerted on the watch, the crown stem doesn't stab into the movement and destroy it. Um, the Raketa doesn't do that. I do not believe the Slava does that and I do not believe the Polyot does that. So it's probably also a testament to how far case manufacturing had improved um, by the time the 80s. Uh, 80s rolled around when these watches are coming out because all these watches have lugs, you know. Whereas the original Vostok amphibias didn't have lugs. Later amphibias, later Vostok amphibias had lugs. So, but yeah, I like this Polyod diver. It's probably my favorite of these like trio of 80s divers between the Raketa, the Slava, and this Polyot. The Polyot is probably my favorite. I have a, a I have an image here from Mark Gordon's website. This is collection item number one two nine nine. What am I looking at here? It looks like a mermaid. I'm looking at the case back. It looks like a mermaid <clears throat> holding a conch shell riding on like a beluga whale. This is fantastic. Oh, it says 100 meters on the back. That's funny. The Raketa was 200 meters. The, no, the Slava was 200 meters. The Slava amphibia can hit, supposedly, 200 meters the Raketa Amphibia, let me see. I am unsure. I am unsure what it's, uh, what it's uh, rated at. And the Polyot says 100 meters. So, yeah, of, of these three 80s divers, Polyot is definitely my favorite, but they all kind of looks similar. You'll get that sense when you take a look at them, but I would say the Slava looks more European of the three, which is not that surprising. In the 80s, um, the Soviets, I think, started recognizing the fact that being so insular for so long was doing more harm than good. And so they became more open to 
know, Western culture and ideas and things like that. Um, Metalheads will probably will know the the uh, what was it? There was that metal concert in Moscow, nineteen ninety one. That's towards that's that's towards the end. Was this after or before the fall? September nineteen ninety one. Oh man, when did the USSR fall? In nineteen ninety one, was it December? That's funny. So Metallica played there <laughs> a few months before the Soviet Union officially uh, officially fell under, dis dis disbanded, if you will. So yeah. So in the later part of the Soviet Union, so in the eighties and the couple of years in the nineties, more open to Western ideas and things like that. So I think it's probably where the Slava. Um, European-ish look came from. There's actually also a version of the Slava Diver that's a Pepsi, which is very European. You know, um, it's like a Pepsi, it's blue dial, a blue, blue, blue dial, red bezel, blue bezel, blah, blah, blah. Pepsi, Pepsi bezel. You guys know that. Uh, let me see where am I at time-wise. I have just enough time <laughs> to tell you guys about the fifth Soviet watch you've probably never heard of. It is a Vostok. And it is technically what has been dubbed by the community the Vostok Cadet. I own one of these watches. I'm going to put it on right now. I'm doing a watch swap. Riketa Big Zero is coming off. Vostok Cadet is coming on. There's a lot of misinformation around this watch. So this watch gets mistaken a lot for the Vostok Amphibia. Um, because it shares a lot of the same dial designs, the case design is also kind of similar. However, people think it's a ladies' watch. People think, oh, the Soviets made a Vostok Amphibia for the, the ladies, and you'll be like, oh, why do you think, why do you think that? And I'll say, oh, because it's small. This idea that small watches or women's watches are really annoying, and it has to go away. Just because the Vostok Cadet is... Um, Small doesn't necessarily mean it's a lady's watch. The watch is 34 millimeters and has a really big 7 millimeter uh, in diameter crown. And it wears wonderfully. I have it on a NATO. I have it on, on a green NATO right now. Um, really, really cool. Beautiful watch. What The theory that I subscribe to with why these Vostok cadets were created and they're not very well known is I think Vostok recognized in the 70s, late 70s, and in the 80s that people wanted the robust robot reliability of the Vostok Amphibia without actually wearing a watch of that size. It was a, it was a 39 or 40 millimeter watch, which is probably a larger watch, you know, for the time period when 34, 35, 36 millimeter watches are basically normal, you know? Uh, so what they did, I believe, and what many other Soviet watch collectors believe, is that they took the Vostok Amphibia and basically just made it smaller for non-Soviet divers or Ministry of Defense people to just wear. Um, and some of the evidence for this actually comes from ads, of, like media ads that uh, survived and were digitally uploaded and that Soviet watch collectors have uh, you know access to and things like that. A lot of watch ads show people like walking around and skiing while wearing 
this very small Vostok cadet. But like recreational skiing, not like I'm chasing James Bond in the Ural Mountain skiing. Like just like people skiing in the 80s on vacation, wearing the Vostok um, cadet. And but I think I think it's mainly just guys in the ads that I, I've never. I don't think I've seen a woman wearing one of these things in one of the old vintage ads. So the idea that that it's a Vostok amphibia for ladies, I don't think is true. Um, You'll even see some stores selling the watch saying, oh, this is a ladies Vostok because it's 34 millimeters. No, if you see this watch online, if you see Vostok Cadet, 34 millimeters, and you think it's cool, and, but you're hesitant to get it because you're like, oh, I don't wanna buy a ladies watch. It's not a ladies watch. You extricate that shit, extract that shit from your head. It's just a watch that they made more for people who wanted to use it for like recreational, not military uses. So that's the fifth watch that I think most people don't know about within Soviet urology. I have one, the Vostok Cadet. I'll get a photo. I'll do a photo of this probably for the uh, for the Instagram show notes when this uh, when the show go uh, goes live. But but yeah, I. That was a lot of information at once. We kind of went all over the Soviet Union, or at least all over Soviet Russia, um, with that conversation. Let me recap the five watches that I had discussed. Sue, hmm. five Soviet watches you've probably never heard of. In order, I think, uh, that I mentioned them, is the Zlatous Diver 1961YC. Probably the most interesting diver. In the collection, and uh, yeah, again, I'm sorry I'm spent, I spent so long talking about that watch, but uh, there's a lot house watch factory. I don't think it's around anymore. Let me see. Uh, I mean, if it is around, I don't know what the fuck it's doing, but I'm going to go ahead and say it's not around, or if it is around, it's very, very low-key, but the first watch I mentioned... Zlatous Diver 191YC, uh, uh, or 161, I'll get them mixed up. Really incredible history, really interesting watch, really odd beef with Invicta, but again, they're not in a position to defend themselves, so Invicta's going to keep selling their quote-unquote Russian diver and claiming they invented it, which is the worst and most annoying part. Um, second watch I talked about was the Raketa Amphibia, the very, very cool Raketa Amphibia, the first part of what I will call the 80s diver trio that tried to improve on the functionality of the Amphibia. Also then talked about the Slava, uh, improve on the Vostok Amphibia. Also talked about the Slava Amphibia, which is more European. I'm going to say it's more of a European take in terms of the design. And then the third 80s um Russian uh, Soviet dive watch that came out, the Polyat uh, Amphibia, probably my favorite of the three. I'll have all the images up and everything like that. And um, and then the fifth watch, if you like the Vostok Amphibia, but you maybe want something a bit smaller, or maybe something with a little less wrist presence, look for a vintage Vostok Cadet. These things are super cool. That's the And that's the fifth watch that I think most watch collectors don't, know about you know as existing within soviet watches so that was a lot of information i really hope that was fun in terms of you know feedback and stuff really hope everyone enjoyed the show if you have any thoughts questions comments or if there's anything that you want me to kind of go over in more detail or whatever you can hit me up on the show notes on instagram you can comment on this post when it goes up on the 
on the on the Two Broke um, Watch Knobs website, twobrokewatchknobs.com. You can also email us at tbws.contact at gmail.com. The email again, tbws.contact at gmail.com. Uh, but if you do email us, please be patient because we are super, back, super backlogged on email uh, as usual. Huge shout out and thank you to at Cincy Watches for joining me with the Zodiac Aerospace GMT Golf. So cool. And a huge, huge shout out to at Captain Nian for joining me on the Patreon audio wrist check with the 2-in-1 Orient Mako XL, the coolest Orient Mako mod I have ever seen. So cool. So, so cool. Uh, in addition to that, if you want to get in on the audio wrist check fun, jump on our Patreon. If you want to get in on the Slack channel fun, hang out with us during work, complain about work, I don't know, talk about shit, talk about watches, baby, go and check out Patreon, get on the Slack channel. The way it works also, people, because people get confused, when you join Patreon and join the Slack channel tier, I need to manually confirm with you what email you want me to use for your Slack channel invite. So whatever email you want to use, use that one to sign up and then keep an eye out for a message from me. Um, just reaching out to you just to confirm that that's the right email and everything like that. So yeah, because I think some people thought they would get like an automatic invite or something like that, uh, which we can probably do, but I like just doing it manually. That way I can control who's actually in there. But yeah, episode 190, five Soviet watches you've probably never heard of. Really hope everyone enjoyed the show. Um, I guess that's it. I'm going to go and rewatch all the John Wick movies again while, while working on some TBWS stuff. I guess that's just how the day's gonna go. <laughs> but here, let's do this. It's that sad time. It's that sad, sad time. Um, I'll let everyone go. I'm no good at closing these things by myself, so I'm just gonna do this. <sighs> uh, what was I gonna say? Oh yeah, it's that sad time. Hope everyone has.